On today's episode, we will discuss many things, and we'll get ready to answer the question, who killed DeMello? So here I am resuming recording for uh, last time I was behind a mic was in March. We did, uh, we did record all the previous episodes uh, from end of uh, 2019 till early March. Then the pandemic hit and since then and in April when we released the first episode, a few things happened. First, the biopic Sergio was released by Netflix. And it was based on a Samantha Powers book, Chasing the Flame, and directed by Greg Barker. I'm glad this movie uh, was out, even if I think it was a, a kind of a Hollywood uh, story film. But it's, uh, it's good that it brought uh, the attention uh, to this man. And uh, the new generation now know uh, of DeMello and his team. And, uh, and people uh, uh, will have awareness for who Sergio was and his passion to help the world. The second thing happened in April is Gil Losher, the only person who survived the attack from Sergio's office meeting that afternoon on August uh, 19th, he died in April from natural causes. And that hit me hard for uh, Mr. Losher was a witness, the only witness as I see it, uh, because he was uh, under the rubble with uh, uh, DeMello. Even if he claimed he had a blackout, of them hours uh, when he was trapped. And uh, he died and uh, took the truth with him about DeMello's uh, last hours. And this really disappointed me. I highly recommend uh, that if you're here today for the first time, that you stop and go uh, back and listen to uh, the seventh uh, episode. For uh, what I'll say here today uh, would give you more a clear picture of all the little details that I mentioned in the previous episode. Because while working on episode seven, we experienced technical difficulty. That's why it was a kind of a short episode. One of the things that I tried to cover but didn't release was uh, DeMillo's death certi certificate. The first death certificate, I should say. And that was uh, for the US Army had uh, to issue uh, death certificates. And I will cover that today. After DeMillo passed away that night on August 19th, he was airlifted by a U.S. Uh, Army chopper and his body was moved to a U.S. morgue, as we uh, said that on uh, the previous episode. Over there, he was perhaps washed and dressed. His body stayed in Iraq until August 22nd. The Brazilian authorities sent an aircraft uh, to bring the body back to Rio for a funeral, then fly him to Geneva to bury uh, his body. And of course, that was against his mother's wish. Here I'd like to mention something quick uh, about burial location, which is in Geneva. It is to our bad luck that Mr. DeMello was still officially married to his estranged wife, Annie, the French woman. I'd say it's our bad luck because Annie DeMello didn't push the UN for a thorough investigation. Not only that, but I strongly believe she would not allow his body to be exhumed or open the case in the future. Annie suggested that DeMello would be buried 
in Geneva instead of Rio. Since no autopsy was performed in Iraq on Sergio's body by the U.S. Army, and a, a while later, I think in late August, a death certificate was issued by the occupiers, but it was loaded with errors. Fields were left blank, inaccurate info. For instance, the citizenship field, and it was written that Sergio was an Iraqi. I thought so deep on this error and what caused it. The answer is, since DeMello was civilian, he had to be issued a civilian death certificate. But the U.S. military had those death certificates filed in their computer and perhaps already filled out. And in the citizenship field was already typed Iraqi for the only printed death certificates for the Iraqi civilians, or I should say issued them. That's the only explanation that makes sense. What I'm trying to say here is the U.S. Army forgot to update the citizenship field before issuing or I should say, printing Mr. DeMello's death certificate. On the other hand is, the pathologist who signed his death certificate, Major Elizabeth Rouse, well, back then in 2003, she was an officer in, as a major, her rank was major. That same doctor in 2007 appeared in a court of a Camp Pendleton regarding Haditha's massacre that took place in 2005. She testified why, with no bodies to look at, she issued death certificates based on seen photos to figure out how them Iraqis were killed at the hands of Marines. Please note, she was not questioned. She only gave her testimony. Perhaps she was sitting somewhere in Baghdad, which is away from Haditha in the Lambar province when she signed the victim's death certificates. Perhaps she wasn't even in Iraq because if she was there in 2005, that means already by 2005, she had three tours, one in Afghanistan and two in Iraq. But I could be wrong. It could be normal for a doctor to have three tours by 2005. But I want to say here, she might have signed DeMello's death certificate without seeing his body, since she did this two years later. And someone else signed it for her. For her name was printed on the death certificate, but the signature was hers with a, a, a written date. So everything was printed, except the handwriting was the signature and the date. For this doctor and pathologist, Elizabeth Rouse, had already a previous incident with her army. In her first tour in Afghanistan, she processed the death certificate of a civilian taxi driver killed in U.S. detention at Bagram Base. This is in 2002. If you watch the documentary, Taxi to the Dark Side, production of 2007, you'd see clearly the details about the death of Delawar, the taxi driver who died in U.S. custody only five days after he was detained. But the U.S. Army claimed Delaware died from being frail and fatigued and had a blood clot. But Dr. Rouse, after the examination and the autopsy, she challenged the U.S. military and wrote in the death certificate the truth that Delaware's death was a homicide. And he was tortured, had a massive tissue damage, and his legs were pulpified. 
This is the same doctor, Elizabeth Rouse, who back in 2003, her name was on DeMello's death certificate. And that wasn't properly filled out. Maybe someone filled it out for her. Was that common for the U.S. military in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes, it was. Sometimes you'd see the name of the pathologist printed on a death certificate by signature of another doctor. In a book titled, Oath Betrayed, America's Torture Doctor, Dr. Stephen Miles wrote that a few pathologists finalized death certificate and signed a few at a time prior of a Pentagon conference and apparently shows using one pen and same hand stroke to finalize of and sign them. Per same book, and in May 2004, Dr. Eric Berg and Lieutenant Colonel Elizabeth Rouse did the same. Now she was a lieutenant colonel. She got bumped up to one more rank. Could have Dr. Rouse signed blank death certificate and perhaps she did that with Mr. DeMellos? Yes, according to the book, Oath Betrayed. A shabby death certificate. Under Brazilian law, per that death certificate, Mr. DeMello was still presumed to be alive. Since it wasn't indicated he's Brazilian, his family was unable to settle his estate. And back then, I mean, we're uh, here a year after, in 2004, his family hired a lawyer and a family doctor friend all had pushed for DeMello's body to be exhumed. Brazilian doctor Ednay de Freitas told an Australian TV station in 2004, only by exhuming the body and undertaking a proper medical investigation can we know how Mr. DeMello was assassinated. Later on, the second death certificate was issued. I am not sure what was updated in it besides correcting the citizenship field. DeMello's body, as I repeated a few times in this uh, podcast, it wasn't autopsied nor examined. But someone might say, why go through the trouble if we know how he died? He was crushed under the blocks. But hey, that's not enough. I think deliberately his body was not examined by U.S. military pathologists. For I believe if he was examined by a pathologist and a coroner team and found that if they found out the case of death, perhaps it would have shown he died not only from being crushed by heavy blocks, but he was finished up immediately after removing Gil Lozier. One more thing I mentioned quickly in the last episode, and I should have elaborated more, is Bernard Carrick's role. Role is a big word for corrupt Carrick. Let's just say presence. Well, that day after the blast of the United Nations campus, in his book titled From Jailer to Jailed, He wrote that he was there at the United Nations complex on August 19th, as I mentioned in episode 7, and he claimed he found the face of the attacker, Abu Farid, uh, and a few days after the bombing, the English newspaper, The Observer, which is the sister newspaper of The Guardian that comes out on weekends, issued an article on Saturday 23rd. Here's what they wrote. American and Middle Eastern intelligence sources have told the observer that Islamic militants acting in the style of Al-Qaeda in Iraq were behind the attack and that Bill Carrick, they meant Bernard Carrick, the Baghdad police chief, said that traces of flesh found in the wrecked 
cab of the truck indicated it may be it may have been a suicide attacker, reinforcing the suspicion of radical Islamic involvement. A year later, and in 2004, the same newspaper, The Guardian, wrote that an Egyptian militant who once played hockey for a top Italian club was the suicide driver who took a lorry, lorry means a track in English, English, loaded with explosives into the UN compound, which killed Sergio de Mello, its top envoy and 21 others people, according to a videotape obtained by The Guardian newspaper. The tape, which attempts to glorify several suicide bombers who have died in Iraq over the year of 2003, says that Abu Farida, notice that now it's Abu Farida with an A. Other sources show that he was Abu Farid. Abu Farid al-Masri, described as an Egyptian who had a history of violent attacks. This is all according to Italian investigation in Milan. On the return from Italy what they mean for return to Egypt from Italy. He ran several operations against filthy Egyptian Coptic Christians who were specializing in removing the virginity of Muslim women, the tape says. It goes on to say that Abu Farida had a dream in which he told his friends later, God will give me the head of a Christian. The tape, well here, they're referring to um, Sergio de Mello. The tape then says that the dream came true with the killing of Mr. DeMello with the use of a lorry containing several tons of explosives. The UN building was full of agents, it claims. The uh, article goes on on The Guardian. But Mr. DeMello was especially targeted because the top UN envoy had been used like a surgeon's knife to cut East Timor from Indonesia, the Christian country, uh, Catholic country from Indonesia, which is Muslim, majority Muslim, and cut up Yugoslavia. And uh, the UN wanted to cut Iraq into pieces also, the claim says. Over. The question here is, since the Guardian had a tape of the Egyptian radical and his uh, suicide bomber and his thugs, why we still don't know who he is, his real identity? By the way, the Italian police did their own homework in this investigations. Does that mean they couldn't find an information of an Egyptian hockey player in Milan? I mean, how many Egyptian hockey players are there in the professional team? I, I don't understand this. That's why in episode three, I ruled out the terrorists and the attacker was this, the whole situation of the attacker, the bomber, was an utterly nonsense story. And since the Guardian paper got the video, why is the U.S. Army didn't use that in their inquest? Since they already said a man, uh, his name is Abu Farid al-Masri, was the suicide bomber at the uh, Canal Hotel. The whole story of the Egyptian hockey player from Italy traveling to Iraq does not add up, guys. And uh, one more thing I'd like to uh, mention here is, as I was gathering info about this case, one driver working for the U.N., um, He's a, a distant relative of mine. Uh, I ask him, uh, well, a few, few questions. And by the way, I ask him, do, do you, have you ever seen Sergio at the Canal Hotel? He said, excuse me? I played soccer with him. And, and guys, this was Sergio. And, and he mentioned something that I would never forget. 
that then on August 19th, he was there. And uh, before four in the afternoon, the drivers, including him, were dismissed before the end of their shift. And I asked him why, and he didn't know. All he said, they, uh, they were sent home by uh, some workers at the uh, UN. Many years later, it hit me. And uh, for I uh, do strongly believe that the truck was detonated by remote control and not driven by an Egyptian hockey player, as the claim was. Now, since we eliminated the suicide attacker, someone might ask, then who drove the truck? I will answer this important question later on perhaps on the next episode. Well, per Samantha Power, she mentioned in her book, Chasing the Flame, that a hand still holding the steering wheel was found on the roof of the uh, U.S. military post for 11th uh, civil affairs. You guys remember in episode five, I uh, did cover the uh, U.N. complex and that for 11th civil affairs battalion were based about uh, 100 meters from the Canal Hotel, same complex. And... uh, on their roof, a hand was found. That's what she wrote in her book. So the FBI added the hand to their collection for the inquest. Not only a hand was found, but uh, Samantha Power, again in, the, uh, in her book, she wrote that someone from CNN the following day called day after and uh, said that a military at a military checkpoint, well, here she means the U.S. military. Uh, you remember we said there was no more Iraqi uh, military. And he, uh, per Paul Bremer, he uh, let the Iraqi army go. So the claim was that about a mile away, a big chunk of the truck was found. And it just happened that this part had a, a license plate. So from the blast impact, the chunk flew a mile away, and it just landed across from the U.S. military checkpoint. Aha, now the FBI has a license plate, left hand, serial number of the truck that was gathered at the site. And, of course, no one mentioned the uh, face that Bernard Carrick stumbled over. The question now is, what did the FBI do with all the items gathered after the attack? Well, As I mentioned before, the hand was sent to Virginia. But get this, the greatest army in the world did not have the means to preserve the hand from decomposing. So by the time it got to the U.S., it was hard to fingerprint. And even if the hand was fingerprinted perfectly, there was no way to match that, for Saddam didn't keep a record. Now Saddam is involved. Didn't we say the attacker flew to Iraq because this Abu Farid traveled to Iraq just be, to get a Christian head, and that's Dumelo. And Dumelo was appointed in his position on May, that year of 2003. So the FBI slept on the case. And by the way, the United Nations did send their own team to Iraq to investigate. But by then, it was hard to figure out how and who killed Dumelo. Just one thing uh, I should have mentioned in the last episode, and a week before the uh, United Nations bombing. And near the hotel where DeMello was lodging and uh, his uh, part of his team as well. You remember in one of the episodes I mentioned, it was called Al-Ars, and uh, that translates from Arabic into English to a cedar. So one morning, uh, Mona Rashmawi, who was staying at the same hotel, and Rashmawi was one of uh, DeMello's team advisors. I think she was a human rights advisor. She recalls finding 
right outside the hotel on the ground, small pieces of papers, blue papers written on them, Al-Qaeda is here, leave the area. Mona Rashmawi shrugged her shoulders, for she knew that the Islamic State and secular Saddam's Iraq didn't go hand in hand. So she found it as if it's a silly joke made by the coalition forces. For the Americans wanted to give credibility for their invasion, and now they're saying there is a threat, and the Al-Qaeda is here. Therefore, we have good cause to invade Iraq, and we are here to stay. That's how she understood it. Do you see, guys, what I'm trying to get with this podcast? Now, let me tell you about, you remember in episode 7, I ended the um. I promised you on the end, very end that I will tell you about the Mercedes-Benz that Bill von Zehel got from Iraq. And Bill von Zehel is uh, the man who uh, ran to the rescue and uh, was with uh, Mr. DeMello when he died. And he uh, was from 411th Civil Affairs Battalion. Here, let me read to you what I found about this man. Federal Customs agents seized a Mercedes-Benz from an Army reservist an armor-plated, bulletproof luxury car likely belonged to Saddam Hussein. First Sergeant William von Zehel said he bought the car while serving in Iraq in his tour during year of 2003 through 04. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, a.k.a. ICE, an agent said the car, which was also equipped with loudspeakers and hidden microphones, was being treated as a possible war trophy. It belongs to the former Iraqi regime, ICE spokesman said. But Bill von Zehel said he bought the car while serving in Iraq. It was a white 1988 Mercedes-Benz model 560 SEL. For about, he bought it for about $5,000. Damn, that's a good deal. And uh, he, by the way, he's a firefighter from Danbury based uh, for 11th Civil Affairs Battalion, as I mentioned. He said investigations were unsure whether the former Iraqi dictator actually owned it. But he said, I cannot prove it. But yeah, this was Saddam's car. He, he told a, a media station that. Later on, of course, he got the car. After they cleared it, the custom cleared the, the car. Von Zehel said he learned through a research that the, uh, the German company Mercedes sold three armored 560s to the Iraqi government in 1988. And Von Zehel said he also saw three photos of the former Iraqi dictator driving a white armored Mercedes. Von Zehel claimed that he spotted the car in a driveway in an upscale neighborhood soon after he arrives in Baghdad, and that was in 2003. In April 2003, he negotiated the sale with the owner who produced a sales receipt that identified the previous owner as a, an Iraqi government. Among, are you guys going to like this? Among its unique features, the Mercedes was equipped with a series of pipes that shoot flames out the sides. Because this is a dandy Mercedes-Benz. Von Zehel was not charged with a crime. Customs officials did not immediately say that um, hap what happened to the car, but uh, the case is being investigated, but uh, eventually he got the car. It went from 
Jordan, to Syria, to Greece, to Spain, before it finally made it its way in May 2004 into the U.S. Guys, I found this Mercedes-Benz story kind of weird. I mean, what are the odds? Hundreds of thousands of troops throughout the years made it to Iraq, and the person that Sergio de Mello died in his arms, a year later he was spotted with a Mercedes-Benz entering the country and made the news. I just find it weird. Am I accusing uh, Von Zeho of anything? No. I just wanted to bring it to the attention. I'm not, accu- I'm, I'm not accusing him of anything. He, he's a firefighter. I mean, what can you say about a firefighter? I mean, they're the best guys, dear God. But I'm sure Von Zeho knows something. In a matter of fact, most of servicemen and women that, work, that were a part of uh, 411th Civil Affairs no, something. See, that battalion, 411th, let me tell you one thing as I uh, was searching about uh, the U.S. complex. See, when I lived in uh, Iraq, I've uh, never been, uh, I've never visited the hotel and the, uh, you remember in uh, episode five about the location, uh, we talked about the uh, tourism school. But as I was uh, doing interviews and uh, asking people about the location, not too long ago. Actually, I did this after I did the episode. And I uh, talked to one guy. He was a student of the tourism college. And uh, as I said, the school converted, and he mentioned something that struck me. He said that the U.S. military in 2003 went to the education ministry to get a permit to convert the tourism school into their outpost. And they brought the 411th uh, Civil Affairs Battalion to be right next door to the UN. I'm not sure when did they move there. Was it April uh, or May of uh, 2003? The question is, what were the Americans, U.S. Army doing in the backyard of the UN? If you think they were there to protect the UN, then you're absolutely right. But they were there for another reason as well. In the next episode, I will tell you what it was. Till then, You guys take care.